You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Well, today is the first Sunday of the month, which means it's our mission spotlight. And we have an organization that has a lot of history with me. Uh, Youth for Christ is here to tell us a little bit about what's going on in their world. I was with Youth for Christ for almost, uh, I was with Cheris, my friend here, for a dozen years, but almost 15 years. You have some stories that are compromising of me, right? And I would ask you to refrain from telling those up here. And so Cheris Miller is here from Youth for Christ, and she's going to tell us a little bit more about what's going on in their world. Now I just realized that's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Cheris Miller, like he said, and I am the chief ministry officer for Big Jaws Youth for Christ. So if you're from the area, you might have heard of Big Jaws. We actually got our start 30 years ago. So this year, this school year, we are celebrating our 30th anniversary. Back on September 11th, 1991, JAWS, which stands for J. Adams and Wells County, JAWS Youth for Christ started right here in Bluffton, Indiana. And throughout the last 30 years, that has grown to big JAWS. We adopted Blackbird and Grant. And for our 30th year, we added our 30th site. It's kind of cool how God works stuff out like that. And we added YFC India. So that's a little bit different, and it's a little bit strange. It's not just to make the I make sense, although it's awesome that it makes the I make sense in our name. Um, It was actually a complete ordination by God, the way that he ordered our steps for that to happen. It was just undeniable that God was in it. And I'd love to tell you that story, but I don't have that much time today. So if you want to, you can hop on our website and watch a short video about how God took a little girl who was unwanted in the country of India, who was adopted here by a faithful and obedient family that opened our eyes to the partnership. And now, God willing, hundreds and thousands of lives will be changed because of the partnership that's existing there. Um, we, we've partnered with them, which means we kind of adopted them into our chapter, which means we're doing something kind of crazy and we're sending $100,000 of our annual budget to them each and every year. And we don't do that to just have it be a mission or a charity. We do that because we believe that they are doing amazing things with far less and that we've got something we could learn from them. So the ultimate idea, if COVID ever goes away, is that maybe I can send my directors over there. They can spend a week partnering in ministry with the YFC Campus Life directors in India, learning from them, growing with them, teaching them, And they can come back here better directors for what they went through on that side of the world. Um, The truth is they're doing a lot more with a lot less. Our $100,000 will fund 11 full-time directors. It will launch 11 new sites, which is like 11 states here, kind of. And it will add 3,000 leaders. So when you think about what $100,000 can do this side of this ocean and what it can do over there. It's just amazing to see God using our faithfulness 
And um, I love what Steve said. Give more than makes sense. And go into all the world and make disciples. That's what, we, that's what we feel called to do. So it's not just about across the world or 30 years. Right here in your own community, campus life is alive and healthy and well and active. At Norwell High School, we've got Ked Mosier and Garrett Booker. Ked's been at Norwell High School for almost um, 12 years now. Garrett Booker is leading the middle school program at Norwell and doing a phenomenal job. We've got a new director at Bluffton High School and Bluffton Middle School. Her name is Maddie Moore. She had some ties to Wells County. She found us, total God thing, has moved back here, will get married this spring, and she's been with us for about a year now and is doing some great things at Bluffton. And then out at Southern Wells, we've got Allison Blevins. Allison was a Southern Wells graduate, and she got to come back and do ministry there, which is really cool. So I say all of that to say what our directors get to do is a rewarding job. It's so fun to walk folks closer to Christ. We love that that's what we get to do. However, this side of heaven, there's a lot of discouragement, there's a lot of challenges, and there's a lot of darkness that we're still fighting. So if you have ties to Norwell or Bluffton or Southern Wells, or if you know one of those folks I just mentioned, Ked, Garrett, Maddie or Allison, I would ask you for the month of January to commit to praying for them each and every day. Um, students' lives are still being changed right here in Wells County, but there is still many, many more students walking in darkness that are lost, that need to know the grace of Jesus Christ. Not for the glory of us, not for the glory of YFC, but ultimately for the glory of God's kingdom. And we know that the only thing that can answer the hurt and the pain and the longing that they have in their heart is a loving relationship, a life-giving relationship with the Lord our God. So I would just ask you to commit to pray for them. Um, pray for the schools and the students that are in those halls. I also just want to end this morning with thanking you for everything that you guys do to make this ministry possible. Thank you for letting me be here this morning. I wish I would have thought of telling stories, but I didn't even think of it. Thank you for all the ways that you guys as a church have faithfully partnered with Youth for Christ for so long. I can honestly say that what we do here in this county would not be possible without your partnership, and we're incredibly grateful for you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, let's just take some time to pray over Cheris and pray over Youth for Christ and so joining. Uh, Lord, we just are humble, the fact that you use us. Um, humble, Lord, that we get a partner with people for the sake of the gospel. And so, Lord, we thank you for this partnership. I pray for Cheris and the whole Youth for Christ organization, Lord, that you would just, uh, you would multiply their efforts, Lord. Uh, but, Lord, you would bring uh, greater dependency on you amongst all of their leaders. And that, Lord, you would do a mighty work. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Cheris. Relieved. That could have gone bad today, Cheris. Thank you for telling me. Well, we are going to begin a series uh, focused on, I don't know why I'm holding a pencil in my hand. I have a pencil in my hand. Uh, just random things that happened with me. We're going to begin a series on prayer. The next five weeks, we're going to focus on just some simple questions around prayer. Today, we're going to look at the priority of prayer in the church. One of the ways that we want to increase our rhythm here in being devoted to prayer is by establishing a physical prayer board in our midst. And so maybe you saw it today. Uh, it's right outside these double doors, but we have a physical location that you can come. There are tags that you can write, prayer requests. You can write your name on them. You can write praises and rejoicings. Uh, but we want you to use those Write them down and then put them on the prayer board. 
And here's what we're asking of people. We're asking of you to, to build a rhythm in your life where you come, whether it's early to church on Sunday or stay after church on Sunday, or maybe it's a time during the week, but maybe you come in here and you grab one of those tags and you take it into the sanctuary and you pray over it. And then if the Lord prompts you with a verse or an encouragement, we're asking you to write it on there and bring some encouragement to that prayer. And eventually what we'll do is we'll have, we'll have a box of answered prayers that we'll get to talk about from the stage. And so we want you to participate in that. You can even text your prayer to us for, via our phone number, 824-2252, and we'll get it written down. And you can come in during the week and write those down too. But I think this is going to be a wonderful way that we can learn a rhythm of praying for one another. It is and should be the priority of the church to pray for its people. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6 today. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there. If Sunday groups has been a part of your rhythm, I would say this, uh, maybe make it a rhythm that you just come here early or come here afterwards and just spend a few moments in prayer. There, there are, at that prayer station, papers that you can write down those prayers. You can take a screenshot or a picture of those tags. Respect people's vulnerability, though, and not sharing those with others. All right, Acts 6, we believe today that God hears our prayer. But more than just hear our request, Prayer is good for us on multiple different way, levels and in multiple different ways. And so let's be honest in our pursuit of this posture, this movement, this cause this month. Acts 6, verse 1, all the way through verse 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, And what they said pleased the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorius, and the, the, Nick, why can I, I always, is that, it's that one word, Uh, the Canor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come before you under this word. It is, it is the good news. It is the, the, the desire of our hearts to live by these words, Lord, that we would know you more fully, that we would know ourselves more fully. And so, Lord, we just come to you humbly today. And Lord, we confess that there are ways in our lives this, this week, in the past weeks, that we have not loved you the way that you deserve to be loved, and we've not honored you in the way that you deserve to be honored, and we've not shared you and shown you to the world in the way in which we should have. So Lord, we just come before you and ask for your forgiveness, and we delight in your grace, grace that renews us every morning. And so Lord, will you move in this service? Will you convict our hearts? Will you guide them? Will you bring gladness to the places it is needed? we pray this through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So Luke, as a physician physician and historian, he writes this letter called Acts. It is the second 
of his two books, the first being the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes Acts somewhere between 70 AD and 90 AD. And the events of Acts 6 take place sometime after the day of Pentecost, which is the day that the Holy Spirit descends to the world after Christ descends bodily to be in the presence of the Father. We don't know exactly when these events take place in Acts 6, but somewhere shortly after the day of Pentecost. And what we can see in relatively quick succession, the church has experienced a supernatural growth. There are thousands of new people that are coming into the church in these months and years after Christ. And it's worth pointing out in this text, in verse 1, that Luke uses the term disciple. He says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, disciple is a term used for all followers of Jesus, believers in Christ. They were disciples of his way, of his life, of his teaching. Their belief centered around his atonement, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Their ambition in life was to center themselves in obedience to him by faith through grace. The desire of their life was to be conformed greater into his image. And I point out this word disciple because I think that we can be led to see a difference in the idea of a believer and one that is a disciple. Disciple kind of conveys this idea of radicalness towards one cause or to a person, somebody who's fully devoted to something. All of their life is informed by that person or cause or pursuit. It is the center of their lives. And so for us in this modern day, the word disciple can feel a little bit too radical. It can feel a little bit much, considering we have so much to set our attention on, so many decisions that we must deliberate through. It could be said of us that we are a let's wait to see what happens kind of people where we don't want to commit to something too fully, too quickly, or to one thing all in. And why? Because there is the possibility that something better might come along. Who knows? Which leads us to believe in Jesus in this way, that we believe in Jesus, but we keep our options open just in case something more flashy comes along. And what Luke is reminding us of here is that you cannot split the words faith and belief and disciple with one another. If one says that they are a believer in Jesus, that they have faith in Christ, it means that they fundamentally and supernaturally, through the sovereign grace and vision of God, have seen themselves as desperate they have seen their need for rescue. They have seen their need for a savior. They have seen their need for a redeemer. They have repented or confessed the folly and error of living a life without him to try to do it on their own. And now by grace through faith, they are setting a new course. They have turned from their old life and they pursue their savior, Jesus Christ, with a belief that he is sufficient in all of life and all of death. That is what it means to be a disciple. Now, had the order mixed up. That could have been, we could have skipped a whole page there. I want you to think about being a disciple in this way. Now, 
Most of you know that I enjoy Costco. And I'll just make it plain that, yes, everything I'm wearing is from Costco. I am not a disciple of Costco, but I flirt with that line every once in a while, right? Some of you out there do the same thing. Now, let's say that you believe Costco is all-sufficient for all your needs in life. You buy all your groceries, you buy all your appliances, all your prescriptions come from there, all of your household products come from Costco, all of your clothes and your shoes, everything that you believe you need in life comes from Costco. Wouldn't you think there would be a possibility that people would begin to question and think about you, and that guy looks a lot like Costco, wouldn't they say, oh, I know that shirt. You got that from Costco, didn't you? Or they may taste that macaroni and cheese and say, hey, did you get that from Costco? And you would say, yes, oh, I knew by the pan. Costco would become identifiable in you. You would have identifiable traits and things about you that someone might even accuse you of having a deep love for Costco. And friends, that is in simple terms what it means to be a disciple Someone who no longer lives for themselves yet for another. One who has faith, and that faith implies that we have turned, that we've become a new creation, a new person that sees Jesus as the most essential and most sufficient source in our life and in our dying. That we have set a new course. That we have set a new course, a course that pursues Christ in all that we can recognize, with all that we have, as we remember how fundamentally and deeply he has served us. It means that people we encounter, they might see a difference in us that isn't us. And they may not know who Christ is, but they, they might see a striving for holiness. They might see a surrender or a humility. They might see a self-sacrificing love that considers others more significant than themselves. They might see a gentleness and grace in us, in our lives. They may notice a hope and a resiliency and a delight in all of the difficult trials of our lives. Being a disciple is no more than one who has turned the other way. Turned away from a life where we are the center where we've experienced and tasted the bitterness of the world in its ways, and we have been captivated by the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And on that journey, turning fully towards Christ and walking towards him, it will cost of us things. And mostly it will cost of us ourselves that we in that journey will begin to look less like our own people, our own selves. And we'll begin to look more like the Son of God. So Luke uses this word disciple, and we shouldn't glance over it. We must see ourselves as disciples. Disciples are all that we can be. Clumsy? Yes. Distracted? Yes. Broken? Yes. But walking towards him always. Knowing that we have all the grace in the world to daily turn back to him. And so Luke begins to talk about these disciples being increased in the church. The church is exploding. And we, in this early stage, begin to see a division stirring up within the church. It doesn't take long in church to see divisions kick up. And the two groups that are at the center of this division are the Hellenist 
and the Hebrews. Now, Hebrews would be Orthodox Jews who see Jesus as the Messiah. They've come to faith. They believe that he is the Son of God. Hellenists would be people, devout Jews themselves, but they would have been influenced by the Greek culture. They would have read the Greek Old Testament. It was called the Septuagint. Now, the devout Jews would have read Aramaic because that's the language of the Israelites. And so there is quite a bit of things that get in these two people's way. Uh, one of which is, is that these devout Jews see the, these Hellenists as lesser. They read the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They see them, if we would put it in our terms, they, they see them as very progressive. They see them as liberal, and they look down on them. And that bothers the Hellenists quite immensely. Now, what seems to be the crux of the issue here in this chapter is in this explosion of growth in the church, some of the widows in the church are being overlooked. They're not being provided for. The early church took very serious their call to care for the widows and the orphans in the world. There literally was no safety blanket, no security blanket that day. There was no welfare. There was no social security. There was no Medicaid or Medicare. The church daily provided for their provision. And the widows, in turn, were expected to serve the church. And it seems that the Hellenists are making an accusation against the Hebrews to say that you're showing favoritism here, that you're not caring for our widows, you're preferring your widows. We're being left out here. And certainly the size of the church in that day has a lot to do with that. A church that has grown to be that large will almost certainly have holes. There will almost be a guarantee that they won't adequately deal with all of the issues that come their way. And so in good wisdom, the 12, 12 meaning the 12 disciples of Christ that you read about in your gospel, 11 original, and then in Acts they vote in Matthias to take spot, the spot of Judas. They met and determined that they should raise up within their ranks seven men of good reputation to access the issues and solve the problem. It is a model of good delegation. This has been the model of delegation in the church. This is the first raising of deacons within the church to serve the church. And so these men, Stephen and Philip and Procarius and Nancor and the worship team really wants me to say Timon and Pumbaa, but it's Timon. Now it's, now it's Timon. Dang it. It got in my head. It's in your head now. It's in your head now. They appoint these men. Now, some, some might see this as arrogance from the 12. Some might see this as sort of arrogant of the 12 to say, we're not going to do this. We're not going to serve tables. That they would delegate this task to another people. But they have a very good reason. They have a very good reason for that. The disciples want to keep the main thing the main thing. They want to keep the most important tenets the most important tenets. They wanted to stay devoted to the word and to prayer. And they didn't want to compromise on those to do anything else. And so they raised up other leaders. Now the word says that they devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, which is the teaching of the word. And then after picking those seven men, what did they do? They prayed over them. They laid their hands over them. And in this chapter, we begin to see very early the priority of the church. The priority of the church. They saw the function of the church revolving around prayer. They saw the health of the church revolving around prayer. 
They saw the growth of the church revolving around prayer. Earlier in this letter, in Acts 2, there's a verse that says that there were people being added to their number daily. There were people being saved daily. And just a few verses before Luke writes that, we find the catalyst for that growth and the catalyst for that adding in Acts 2.42. And it says of the church that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This was the catalyst of the early church and its explosion. They were serious about prayer. For the early church, everything revolved around prayer. There was no power without prayer. There was no action without prayer. Prayer was breath. Just as one cannot survive without air in our lungs, committed followers of Jesus could not survive without prayer. It was the main thing. And that is our big idea today, is that prayer is the breath of God's church. It is the very air in our lungs. And so what do I mean when I say that? Well, we see early in the church a few important aspects, important roles that prayer played in their daily lives. The first is this, is that prayer is the place that we remember God is God. That is our first point, that prayer was the place that we remember God is God. When we humble ourselves over a cause, over a frustration in thanksgiving or in desperation or simply in rejoicing, we are recognizing God to be the God of the universe with all of the power and all of the ability to intervene and change our situation as he has done throughout history. And we are humbled by his goodness and grace. Prayer ushers us into our truest reality, that we are creation in need of our creator. And the more we move ourselves into prayer, the more we reinforce that truth in our lives. And the more we as the church grow in our affinity to pray with and for one another, we reinforce the truth of that to ourselves, that God is God. And the more we do that as a church and amongst one another, the outsiders that come into our church see that we believe God is God. Prayer is the place that we remember God is God. And it is a great joy to remember that. I think of a prayer in Psalm 13 that David writes, and we see in this prayer, just in one prayer, David moves from despair and to delight. In Psalm 13, David starts out with, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? This is despair. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? And I have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Consider and answer, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Did you hear that? David says, I've trusted you. 
He moves from despair to delight in his remembrance of the steadfast love of the Lord. Sometimes, sometimes the simple act of us praying before the Lord in our desperation and our pleas and our thanksgivings is all that is needed to unburden our lives. All that is needed to unweigh our souls, to renew our delight. The second posture we see of the early church and why they're so devoted to the prayer to prayer alongside the ministry of the word was that they recognized that prayer was a place where God's power met them. Prayer is the place we find God's power. There's an interaction between Jesus and his disciples in Mark chapter 9 with a boy that has an unclean spirit that has robbed him of the ability to speak. And the father takes the son and he brings him to the disciples and he asks the disciples to pray over him and remove the demon from him. And the disciples do that and nothing happens. And then the father takes the son to Jesus and of course Jesus does. He does heal this young boy. And at the end of the story, there's this picture of Jesus in the house with his disciples. I kind of see them kind of debriefing of the day. And one of the disciples chimes up and says, Jesus, why, why, didn't, why couldn't we cast out that spirit? And Jesus just says some frank and simple words. He says, this kind can only come out by prayer. Now, what Jesus isn't insinuating here is there are, there are types of spirits and strongholds that can just be removed with ordinary, everyday power. Or that there are certain special power and over strongholds and spirits that will take prayer. What he is implying is that they thought too much of themselves. And they had thought way too little of God. The reason they were disappointed in the house at the end of the day was that they trusted in themselves too much. They had not humbled themselves before the Lord to seek his will and his power. And so, friend, do you understand that God has willed it he didn't have to, but God willed it that he is affected by our prayers, that he hears our prayers. He didn't need to do that. God didn't need to reveal himself to his creation in order for him to be God, but he did. And God doesn't need to hear the prayers of his people in order to be God, but he does. God hears our prayers and he dispenses his power through our greater dependency on him and less to ourselves. Prayer is an open admission that without Christ, I can do nothing. And prayer is, the turn, is a turning away from ourselves to God in the confidence that he will provide for us what we need. He will be our help in our present circumstance. But more often than not, the power of prayer tends to change the one who is praying than the situations and circumstances of our lives. When we pray, our eyes are open to the supernatural world, to another dimension in which our hearts are renewed by the grace and the goodness of God. Often in that, it is our circumstances that become lesser. We are no longer hopeless because we have been given a new perspective. Our hope is increased in that God has spoken to us. Often, the mountains that we want to see God move in our lives are mountains that are in our own minds, in our own our hearts. Prayer is the power that moves them. And lastly, prayer is the place where we lay down our divisions. 
If you notice in the story in Acts 6, at the end of this, what do the people do? They rejoice over the fact that this seemed to be good wisdom. They liked what they were doing here. They agreed the decision was good. The whole church agreed with this. I can't think of a time where a whole church agreed about one decision. The whole church agreed. And that only comes with being a church that is committed to praying together. When we pray together, when we pray for one another, it allows us to, in a small scale, reinforce the sort of love that Jesus gives to us, this selfless, self-sacrificing love that took Jesus to a cross that pursues our highest good without due compensation. When we pray and take the time to pray for one another, to intercede on their behalf, we are seeking their highest good without a demand for anything in return. Prayer models and reinforces selfless love for one another as we go to war for each other in prayer. There is an intimacy to prayer that connects us. When you hear people pray and pray for us and you, like you hear their heart. We live in a world often believing things about people simply by what we hear. We believe things about people mostly because of stories that we've created in our head, what we think they're like and who we think they are. But it is in prayer that we get to hear their heart. It is in prayer that we get to hear them stir up their affections for us. They are praying for us. And our divisions and our misconceptions of one another cannot stand in the places that we pray. Prayer is the place that we remember God is God. Prayer is the place that we find our power. And prayer is the place that we lay down our divisions. And the early church knew that. And they modeled it. Today, we in the 21st century, with good intentions in our hearts, we've allowed ourselves to mold, be molded into the corporate world. We have, with good intentions, given ourselves over to be shepherded by business strategy and success principles. We see the driving force in our evangelism and in our growth to be in the world of attractionalism, which makes, means that we want to make our churches look more attractive to the world and through better marketing. And we have robbed the church of its power in doing so. We have robbed the church of its power in doing so to serve the God of popularity. We have gutted the gospel. We've gutted the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, because it begs us to surrender and sacrifice. But if we do not see ourselves as dependent, if we see life about strategy and better principles and motivation, it will keep us in the land of self-sufficiency. Today, often people come to faith and they're taught a mystical experience that centers around feelings and motivation. It leads us to despise our minds and disdain theology. We find ourselves constantly seeking the next great high in our faith. We have made it into an experience, not a covenant, not a commitment. God has given us a brain, and he has given us an intelligence. Being full of truth and being full of the Spirit is incompatible 
with anti-intellectualism that tells us that faith is about feeling and not fact. And because of that, prayer has become an afterthought. Prayer has become a strategy. Prayer has become a conviction without action. It is not the life force of the church. It's not the breath of the church. Prayer serves us in our experience rather than the power that forces us to humble ourselves and remind ourselves that God is God and we are not. And look, there is no one in this room that is more to blame for that than I am. I admit you today that I have not made prayer the fundamental rhythm of this church I have grossly underestimated its necessity. I have belittled its power. And I ask for your forgiveness. I have helped reinforce in you that this is not a cause to be devoted to. And I seek the Lord in his forgiveness and grace. John Owechekwe, who's a pastor, he wrote this quote, and it cut to my heart. He said, unfortunately, our prayers in the church too often feel like prayers before meals, obligatory and respectable, but no one really gets much out of it. Our church prayers get reduced to a tool of transitioning from one activity to the next. Let's have everyone close their eyes and bow their heads so that the transitioning of the praise team on and off the stage isn't so awkward. I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of that. Prayer is awkward. Let's just be honest. There is a silence to prayer that doesn't come natural to us. I get that we don't know what to say. I get that we don't know what to do with our hands. I don't know what to do with my hands up here. I understand all of that. But we have to get past that. Because God's church must pray. This church must pray. And we will devote ourselves to a greater understanding of that in these next few weeks. Matthew Henry, who's a commentator, meaning he's a writer that brings insight and deeper meaning to the scriptures, Matthew Henry says this. He says, prayer will never be superseded until it's swallowed up in everlasting praise. We will need to pray as God's people until Christ returns in glory. And so I'm not asking you today to, with greater determination and motivation, change the habits of your life, to grit and bear and get better principles and prayer practices in your life, I'm asking you and me to be honest about where we sit here. I'm asking you to understand, through the Lord's grace, why it is that you don't see prayer as the fundamental posture of our life. I'm asking myself those questions. Will we let the Lord guide us here? Will we let him convict us and turn us towards him again here? Will we allow him to mold us in this aspect of our lives? Prayer is the breath of the church. And it cannot be anything less than that. And we have lots of work ahead to do.